Welcome to the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada, a podcast about ex-cadet women mentoring and building community together. I'm your host, Amanda Calhouse, a graduate of the Royal Military College of Canada, class of 1994 in electrical engineering. Good morning. Today I have with me Monica Bobbitt of A Goat Rodeo. How are you doing today, Monica? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. I know it's uh, maybe a little different for our listeners today because you you are not a graduate of the Royal Military College system. But that being said, you have some uh, some pretty deep connections to uh, to the military in general. So, do you want to introduce yourselves to our listeners? Sure. Um, so I'm Monica Bobbitt. I'm a writer at agoatrodeo.com. And some of you may have seen my column in military Canadian Military Family Magazine. And if you're in the military, you might have seen me speak at one of my various speaking events at the various bases around the country. I am not a military member. I am the widow of a military member. My husband, Lieutenant Colonel Dan Bobbitt, was the CEO of 2RCHA. And he was killed in a lab rollover during Exercise Maple Resolve in Wainwright in May 2014, actually. And after he died, I decided to start writing about my experiences as a widow. And and originally, it was just kind of to help me process my grief. And then it's grown into this big platform that I never thought I'd have. Well, and I, I know I've come across it through some some mutual connections that you and I have and have shared it with others. And, you know, the, the reason that uh, I thought it would be great, Monica, to have you on the podcast is because, you know, in a few of the different episodes, we've talked about, you know, particularly for the women who have transitioned out of the military into the civilian world, as I call it. Um, yes. They're, you know there is a sense of, of grief and loss that goes along with that. And, you know, I thought that would be a, a really good way for us to end season one is, is to talk about those transitions and some of the parallels. So I'm excited to have you here today. Well, and I'm excited to be here today. Awesome. So uh, maybe as we get started, can you uh, tell us a little bit about your background and where, uh, where did you go to school? <laughs> Uh, so I actually went to Acadia University in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, and I did, uh, oddly enough, I did an honors degree in psychology, and my husband Dan also went to Acadia. We actually met each other in high school when we were just, yeah, we were 17 when we first met, and he was a reservist, actually, at the time. He was a private in the reserves, and during our first year of university, he got accepted into the ROTP program. And he actually didn't have artillery on his list, but that was what they offered him. And it took him about 15 seconds to say yes, because he knew that's what he wanted to do with his life was to be in the military. And they offered to move him or they they said, OK, so you have two choices. You can start first year over again at RMC next year or you can stay at Acadia and carry on. And he was for him, it was a no brainer. He's like, why would I want to redo my yeah. first year again? So that was what I studied in university. And then after Dan died, I went through the vocational rehabilitation program with back and got a certification in creative writing from the University of Calgary. And I just finished that up last year. And I'm currently doing a certification in um, grief, bereavement and mourning from Georgian College. So I'm almost finished that certification. Wow. We have talked a lot um, about the decision women make, you know, to either stay or leave the Canadian Armed Forces. And your experience was much more unique. 
but it really speaks directly to, you know, that potential loss of community that some might feel. So can you tell us a little bit about that and even how you dealt with it? Yeah, so obviously uh, it was uh, really unexpected with Dan dying the way he did when he did because, and in fact, when they told me, they, when they came to tell me that he died, I said, what are you talking about? He's only on an exercise. Because I wasn't in that mindset. Like, he yeah. wasn't deployed to Afghanistan. He'd just gone to Alberta for, you know, a six-week exercise. And, you know, he we had just, you know, he hadn't even finished his first year of command. So retirement wasn't anything that we had ever even discussed at that point in our lives because you know we still had teenage kids and he was still loving his career and so you know Dan was the kind of guy who would have stayed in the military until they kicked him out at 60 or whatever it is right so um after he died it was like okay who the who am I now I'm no longer you know Dan's wife uh I do I belong in the military community? Do I not belong in the military community? Where do I fit in? Where do I want to spend the rest of my life? And I knew it wasn't Petawawa. I can tell you that right now. And, you know, it's a big decision to make. You only have two years to figure that out, right? To right. do your move. And But my kids were 14, 16, and 18 at the time. Right. So Connor was going off to, to join the military himself. And then the girls, uh, my youngest, Catherine, was going into grade nine. My, my, the oldest girl, Elizabeth, was going into grade 11. So I'm like, okay, so do I move now or do I stay and wait for Elizabeth to graduate and then move Catherine for grades 11 and 12? And I knew she was the kid that needed the consistency. So the four of us kind of sat down and said, okay, well, where do we want to live? You know, and so we made the decision. They were really keen to go home to Nova Scotia. That was you know, even though they had never lived there, that was kind mm. of their home, right? Because that's, we spent every summer, we would go home to visit my parents and Dan's parents and his parents have a beautiful cottage there. And so um, that's what we did. And I knew that even as we did it, I knew that making the transition to a civilian community was going to be really hard for me because my whole entire adult life had been spent in the military community right. and all of my friends were military spouses or members. Um, but you know, I thought, well, it's the best thing for the kids and they can be close to Dan's family and my family and I can have that kind of support. And it wasn't very long after I moved that I'm like, Hmm, maybe this isn't the right spot for me. And I actually ironically ended up moving back to Wolfville where mm-hmm. Dan and I had gone to university and it's a beautiful, beautiful part of the country. Um, it's a, it's a great little town, but I just felt so out of place. Mm-hmm. And even though I had gone to school there and still had friends from high school there, I had been gone for so long. And then, you know, it's a university town. So the half the people are, way younger than me and then the other half are retired people and I'm like where do I belong and then I started writing and started doing this and started traveling around the country and everywhere I went to you know whether it was to Gagetown or to Kingston or to Ottawa or Petawawa there were people there waiting for me and I thought wait a minute I need to be where my people are And it's ironic that I chose to move to Ottawa because uh, I can tell you when we, Dan did staff college in in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and we were there for two years. And when we found out we were posted to Ottawa, it would have been, that was our second posting in Ottawa. And I cried because I didn't, I'm like, I don't want to live in Ottawa because it's just not the same as being on a base, right? And then um, 
the West End of Ottawa has just grown so much and there's so many, you know, serving members here, retired members here. I had so many friends here. Dan's best friend and his wife literally had a house like 500 meters from where I built my house and it was just the perfect spot for me to come. And then I came here and, and even though I can't sing a note, I joined the Canadian Military Wives Choir and met so many other people. And, you know, my kids are here, right? My son is posted to Petawawa um, with his new wife. Um, and uh, my youngest daughter goes to Carleton. So she has an apartment in downtown Ottawa. And then my oldest daughter is in Toronto. So to me, it was just the perfect spot to be. But it took me a while to figure out how I fit in right you know and to establish my identity and you know my best buddy said to me sometimes you need to go somewhere to figure out where you don't want to be and I think that that was my experience in Nova Scotia I will always love Nova Scotia but it's just not where I it's not my home it's not where you were meant to be yeah it's my home but it's not my home right like it's you know my home is in my community and it's with my kids and But more importantly, I think home is inside of me where I feel the most comfortable, where I feel the most myself. And I, you know, I was in Ottawa for five minutes and I was like, okay, this was the piece that I was missing. Right. Well, you know, I think it, it, it must take a certain amount of courage to have made the, you know, made the decision to move to Nova Scotia and then to pack up and move again. Like not... I, oh. I, I wonder sometimes, like, I'm not sure everyone would, would do that. Some people would just It did, and it was not. a huge, <laughs> huge decision because, you know, they say, one of the first things they say, in, 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 you know, when you've suffered a significant loss is don't make any big decisions in the first year. Well, I mean, three <laughs> months later, I was packing the moving truck okay. and moving, right? Yeah. Um, and so when I got there and I'm like, okay, my kids love it here, but uh I'm, I'm not, the reality was I wasn't unhappy in Nova Scotia, especially the first couple of years, because I was so, I, I, I still had so much grieving to do. Right. And yeah. it was a perfect spot for me to grieve. But I knew once Catherine graduated from high, from high school and went off to university, um, that it would be a totally different situation. And she actually decided to come to Ontario to university. And Elizabeth was in Ontario for university and Connor was in Ontario for university. And I'm like, well, okay, (laughs) wait a minute. My kids are all in Ontario and I'm here and I feel very, and it's funny because I talk about this a lot with the pandemic. A lot of people feel socially isolated. And I said, well, you know what? Widowhood is a great workup training to a pandemic because I was very socially isolated right. in Nova Scotia. I had, ironically, I had a couple of good friends that I would see, you know, on a monthly basis or, you know, uh, every few weeks or whatever. And they were, one was an ex-military member and the other one was a, a former military spouse. Right. So (laughs) even there, I was, I was still connected to that that community. Yeah. So I spent and, and I did not rush in the decision to move because one thing I realized with widowhood is it comes with a lot of judgment. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, especially the first year or so, every time I would do something, I would get a comment. Oh, you bought a new car, you know, or you, you're going on a vacation or, you know, oh, you have your rich military widow. Oh yeah. It happened all the time. So I thought, what are people going to say for a while? I thought, what are people going to say? I've built this huge, beautiful house in this beautiful town. And I actually want to sell it and pay to move myself back to Ontario. So 
Um, you know, I, I didn't talk to many people about it for a long time. The only person I actually ironically talked to about it really was Dan's dad. And it's funny because he came to visit one day and we were out, we, we went out for lunch, just the two of us. And, and I was like, okay, I need to talk to him about moving. And he looked at me and he said like, you know, I don't want you to think I'm trying to get rid of you, but you know, I think you'd be a lot happier in Ottawa. And it was just so like, it's serendipity, right? Like it was just so, so I'm like, yeah, I've come to the same conclusion. So it's funny because I went to my financial advisor and said, okay, I know this sounds crazy because I just moved here a couple of years ago, but this is what I want to do. And I need you to tell me if I can afford it. And he looked at me and he said, Monica, you're asking yourself the wrong question. The question you should be asking yourself is, can I afford not to? Not to. And wow. it was just, yeah, it was amazing. So um, I waited for Catherine to finish school. And uh, a month later, we packed up, loaded the car up and drove all the way back to Ottawa. And here we are. <laughs> and I have not regretted it. Not for one minute. Like it was the best decision I could have ever made for myself. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So continuing on that thread of you know, sort of the the decision making in periods of grief, you know, that your transition, you know, you went and you you went to a, a non-military community and then back to a military community. Were there, you know, sort of in terms of like the grieving process and, and that transition, you know, how, yours was different, but how do you see that, you know, um, relating to, to people who are sort of leaving a a military career and looking to do something different? Well, I think it's, you know, I think it's, there's so many commonalities, right? And I think one thing we don't, we don't talk about enough is that, you know, so many people, when they think of grief, they think of it as something that solely relates to death, but that's not true, right? You grieve any significant loss in your life, right? Whether it's your health or a limb or a relationship, what we don't realize is that life is a series of transitions, right? You transition right. from childhood to teenager, from high school to university, and then you go from university, you go on and you, you get a career, you get married, you join the military, and then there's promotions and postings and you have children. And some of those choices or some of those transitions are by choice, right? right. But some of them are unwanted, like a medical release. Yeah. And I, I think what we don't realize is whatever the circumstances, all of these transitions involve an ongoing process of emotional adjustment, right? You're navigating that in between space and that navigation can be difficult because it presents so many new challenges and emotions. Um, And I think for veterans and by extension, their spouses, one of the most sensitive periods is the transition to military from the military to civilian life, whether that's the result of a medical release or a retirement, right? Right. And there's been so much focus lately on helping members transition to civilian life, but there really hasn't been a lot of attention paid to the grief that is experienced by the veterans and, again, by their spouses during this transition. Yeah. It's it's really interesting because, you know, it. I think it was... Um... Kathy Priestman, who was, you know, sort of really made that connection for me about that loss, you know, it can come with a loss of identity, Um, a loss of identity, a loss of community, a lot of military members, you know, and I think at one point in time, we would have counted ourselves among that group. Oh, I can't wait to get out of the military and I'm going to move home. 
Yeah. But, but, and what I realized the hard way is that home isn't the same and neither are you, right? I mean, 21 years after I moved back to Nova Scotia, I wasn't the same Monica, the same naive young bride who'd left 21 years later. I was, you know, I was a widow. I was 43. My community, you know, the town had changed, but I had changed most. Like it was just, and you don't realize how important that network of support is. And yes, I had family there and they were lovely, but they, first of all, none of them had lost a spouse. Second of all, none of them, besides my father-in-law, they hadn't been in the military. So they, they didn't truly understand how I felt like I was all I was it was the secondary loss and we don't talk about that right the secondary loss of my identity as a military spouse of my community as a military spouse is the support that comes with it um and it's not something that we talk about nearly enough yeah it's very true I know when we were talking earlier you and I were talking a bit about social resiliency and how that sort of plays into uh you know, how there's been a lot of emphasis lately on social resiliency, but it doesn't really tie into to the understanding of, of grief that goes along with it. Yeah, that's right. Yes. I think we tend to underestimate how important that community is in our, our grief response, right? And, and, right? and how we cope with it. And I think this is why, you know, and I've read, you know, I've been started to been studying this more and more lately. And and one of the studies I read discussed about how there's a difference for the military members who are transitioning now than there would have been, you know, post-World War II or the Second World War, because there were so many of them. Right. And they were, you know, they they so many of them came from the same town and. And they had that support group when they went home because, you know, the ones that went home, there were, you know, they joined the Legion and that's, you know, and they had that peer support. But we don't, we don't seem to see that as much anymore. The members don't, you know, they don't have that support group of the, I mean, the Legions are still there, but but not a lot yeah. of members tend the to utilize them. Or, the it's yeah. not the same. And also the attitude of, of the general public isn't the same as it used to be, right? And I right. think I think a lot of military members, they don't get to talk about their experiences with their neighbors and stuff. And they, you know, and, and in some cases maybe they they keep that part of their, you know, their lives. Yeah separate from from their civilian world right so but I mean the thing is is it's anybody who retires from a a career is going to go through a grieving process but I think it's significantly pronounced in military members because it wasn't just a job right it was a lifestyle and it was and it was a culture that's so true you know it's interesting what you said about you know just the the communities and things I've noticed it lately um I, I work at General Motors and they um you know obviously a, a large American company and they have a veterans employee resource group in the US and we have one here in Canada. But the difference um, in the in the participation and the you know the the not not even that just that you know what I really noticed is like you know Americans can spend five years in the military doing a, a specific job and that's celebrated. Yeah, you know that's in right. their in their future careers and you know even though my company is good about that as a whole, I don't, I don't really see that in Canada to the same extent. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, um, and I think because of that, the grief that 
many experience, veterans experience when they retire is disenfranchised because, you know, in other words, it's not honored the same way as it would be if they lost, you know, a spouse or a child, right? Right. So I think in many ways, the loss and grief veterans experience, it remains relatively unrecognized or misunderstood by society. And so that also results in a reduced capacity for their community to acknowledge these losses, right? So, and I think that then creates a situation where veterans don't really have a way to express what they are thinking and feeling. And I think the other part of this too, is that retirement is often painted as this perfect time of your life, right? (laughs) Where everything is fun and simple and, you know, easy. And it's all about relaxing and vacation. But if you've been in the military, you know, you go from one extreme to the other, right? So if you're in the military, your your daily routine is really structured and you have lots of social interactions and you have this camaraderie, even like things like PT, they're part of your daily routine, right? right? And then you retire and all of that stuff is suddenly gone and you're at, you're kind of at loose ends and you're like, well... What do I do with myself now? What do I now? do with myself? Right? And, um, and of course, the other part of that I find too is, and I mean, this, you know, this has started to change over the last several years to a certain extent, but part of the military culture is also that stoicism, right? That, yeah. you know, and that's, you know, that, that quality is often needed when you're on intense operations, but it's a real hindrance when you're grieving, right? Because it, right. it causes you to kind of hide your grief behind that facade, right? Um, yeah. And you kind of use humor or bravado and you're, or, you know, somebody asks you how you're doing and you say, I'm fine, when you're in fact anything but anything fine. But. <laughs> but, but you don't know how to say, well, I, I, I don't, you know, I know, I, you know, I've got a good pension, I'm retired, I have all of these things, but I still feel like something's missing. So, right. you know, and I don't think a lot of people just don't recognize that what they're feeling is actually grief. Right. Yeah. It's sort of the, the idea of it's, it's okay to feel not okay. <laughs> that, yeah. It's definitely okay to not feel okay. Yeah. Um, and then of course there's those conflicting emotions, right? Because, you know, cause you know, one day you might be sad the next day you might be excited and planning a trip or, you know, so then it's this right. mental tug of war because, you know, you're really sad about what you lost, but you're excited about what you have. Yeah. And, um, you know, and it's normal. It's perfectly normal to oscillate between those thoughts and feelings, right? That's right. just part we're, of we're... the transition into retirement. But, but, you know, I think that, I think we think that in grief too, right? That it's all or nothing, Right. Mm. If I have a day where I'm feeling, you know, when you're grieving, like I remember, like not grieving the loss of a spouse. Right. Like, you know, one day I would just be a bag of of emotional mess. Right. And I'd be Mm -hmm. crying and all, you know, distraught. And then the next day I'd be laughing about something that happened. And I'm like, well, how I shouldn't be happy about this. I shouldn't be enjoying this. I shouldn't. We think that we have to feel all one way or all the other way. And that's not true. That's so true, right? I mean, we're humans, right? We have exactly. <laughs> our, our emotions are, uh, <laughs> they're, they're, they're not binary. <laughs> well, and it's, it's true. And we have to, you know, we have to realize, and I mean, that's how you process it, right? You go through this, um, 
process of going back and forth in your emotions. And, and isn't that true in life too? Like not every day in life, are we going to be happy? Yeah. And that's okay. But I think, I think part of that is naming it. Right. And I think one of the keys to dealing with grief, any kind of grief, whether it's the grief of a, uh, the loss of a person or your health or retirement is to, is to acknowledge it, to say, it's okay that I feel these emotions and that, it's perfectly natural response to this, right? Yeah. Um, and when you accept them as part of the grieving process, you know, that that acceptance is essential for you to be able to process your grief and to move forward. And I think, you know, we just, we have to normalize that and we have to normalize talking about grief. And, and you know, in the military community in general, not just at retirement, but even during a, your career, you know, when, you, when you've lost someone close to you whether it's you know someone with you on deployment or or what or you've lost a friend by suicide we have to acknowledge that we've experienced these losses and I think for too long the focus the focus is on you know when it comes to to veterans and grieving and military members and grieving it the focus is it's not on grieving it's on you know we we pay a lot of attention now to operational stress injuries and PTSD, but we don't talk about the fact that there's also a grieving component, right? Mm. And if we normalize talking about grief while the member is still serving, then it makes it, and and we, we, then it makes that. You build that muscle. (laughs) You, you do build that muscle, but then you're not so taken aback when it, when you start to experience grief at the end of your career. And I don't, you know, I've never sat in on a, uh, you know, on any of these programs that they have for, for members who are retiring. But I think, I think it, it's important that we talk about the grieving aspect of it. So people are aware of it before it happens yeah. and they kind of have an idea of what to expect. Right. right. Um, and if you, if you, you know, if we always paint the transition from, you know, full-time career to retur- <laughs> retirement with these rose colored glasses, then people just, they don't know how to deal with it if they don't, if they think, okay, I should be happy, but I'm not happy. Why am I not happy? Yeah. And if we talk about it, then it also helps them recognize some of the responses that they have, because a lot of people aren't aware of what kind of responses you have when you're grieving. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's not just emotional. It's not just being sad. You have cognitive responses. You have physical responses. And, uh, and I remember being totally unprepared for this when Dan died because, you know, they come to the door and they tell you that your spouse has been killed. And then you have, you know, a padre come to speak to you and you have your designated assistant. But nowhere in that process, in that first few hours, does anybody say to you, okay, well, this is what you might experience, you know, you're going to be grieving, you're going to, you know, and this is what might you might experience. And, and I remember thinking that I was crazy because the first few hours I was just completely numb. And I'm like, well, what's wrong with me? I should be crying. Right. Right. But I was in shock, but I had no idea. And then, you know, as it goes on, I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't, you know, it was like 18 months before I could read a book after Dan died. Mm -hmm. Um, My memory was terrible. I remember one day I got in the car to go to the grocery store to get, I think, milk. And I ended up in the drive-thru at Tim Hortons. Oh, wow. And I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, I'm up at the, uh, at the booth and I have to order a coffee and I'm crying because I don't even want a cup of coffee, but I just somehow that's where I ended up. Right. And, 
and you know, like the irritability and, and, and that's part of it and the insomnia and headaches. And, and so grief comes with a whole gamut of reactions that most people are unaware of and unprepared for. Right. I remember when you were telling me that when we first met and, um, yeah, I, I never known about the, the physical and cognitive things that went along with grief. I mean, for every, everything I'd ever learned about grief was it's a six step process. Yeah. And it's not, and it's not right. It's definitely not. And I think that's one thing that we all need to be aware of is that all of us grieve in a totally different way and there's no right or wrong way to grieve. And I was a very, uh, I was an activity oriented griever. So for me, I, I spent a lot of time, um, in movement. So I would walk Mm -hmm. and run and, um, and you know, uh, right. Right. Like for yeah. me, I couldn't necessarily articulate what I was feeling with words, but I could do it on paper. I could articulate it. Um, right. you know, and I think we have this stereotypical notion that when people grieve, you know, you shut the curtains and everything's, and you know, everything's closed off. And, and I wasn't like that. I, I, you know, from the very beginning, I felt compelled to talk about what I was going through and to be with other people but not everybody's going to experience it that way. Right. But I'm so glad that you did because I think you really, honestly, you opened the door for so many other people to freedom for how they grieve. Well, and that's, you know, and I think that's part of the reason that's what compelled me to start. Well, besides my um, my favorite Padre said, you really, you know, I think you should do this. And I'm like, He's like, yeah, no, really. I think you should start talking about this stuff. So I did. I was kind of amazed at the response and how much it resonated. But I think it's because grief is still such a stigmatized subject, right? And I mean, I certainly don't remember talking to anybody about any of this stuff before Dan died. And, you know, because it's so stigmatized, we have such stereotypical ideas of what grief is and how people should grieve and I'm here waving my hand wait a minute this is not my experience right Right. and I think it's important that we talk about it and we you know and I think that is one of the um I guess the silver linings of of the pandemic is we've started to talk about grief a lot more and how grief isn't just about the loss of a person you know people are grieving their normalcy that you know their daily routines they're, they're grieving their um, HLTAs when they're deployed, right? right? You know, there were a lot of people who were deployed last year whose, you know, their their leave was just canceled at the last minute. And, you know, some of them had once-in-a-lifetime trips planned. And I think sometimes we tend to try to diminish the, the significance of these losses, right? Yeah. And you say, well, you know, it was just a vacation. It could have been worse. Yeah. And, and yeah, you're right. It could have been worse, but it's, it was your vacation and you planned it and you're still allowed to grieve the loss of that. Yeah. You're okay to, it's okay to be sad about it. And I think the other thing too is, and I think about this a lot is rituals really help the grieving process. So that's why things such as, you know, funerals and memorial service and burials, those are such an important part of the grieving process when somebody dies. And at the same time, when we have retirements, 
right? And we have departures with dignity and we have a final mess dinner or, you know, in our community, you go and fire your final round and it's a big, those are important rites of passage that a lot of people, you know, you they're doing them on, you know, well, you can't fire a gun on Zoom, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, you know, you're having farewell parties on Zoom and it's better right. than nothing, but it's still not the same. And I think that's, you know, that's another key piece that's been impacted by the pandemic. So, yeah. you know, it's very anticlimactic, isn't it? You've had this 30 year career, say, and it comes to an end and, and the only it comes to an end on Zoom, on Zoom. Right. Yeah. And, and so that kind of thing complicates the grieving process. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. You know, I can even speak from a personal perspective because my my parents lost uh, my dad's best friend last February, so February of 2020, mm-hmm. and we we were able to grieve. We were able to have a memorial service and you know a, a, an end of life celebration. And I have thought for the past year about how fortunate we were. Like we were able to be there to say goodbye, mm-hmm. and. If it had happened even a month later, that was likely not going to be possible. And so exactly. My heart breaks for the people who've had to go through that loss in the pandemic. Well, and I think about that. I think about how hard, you know, well, really the first couple of years, but especially the first six months. And imagine, I can't even imagine going through that without the support of the... And not just the support, but the physical physical support, the physical presence of people, um, you know, because I mean, from the minute that Dan died, like from the minute that I was informed Dan died, I mean, our regimental community just, they just swooped in on me and and my children and they just completely surrounded us with love and, and, and support. and, And I mean, honestly, they were the glue that held us together in those first weeks. And so many people are going through this alone right and it's even to extend that to people who were retiring they're moving Mm -hmm. you know they're moving in the middle of a pandemic to a community they haven't lived in you know maybe never before maybe not for 20 years like me and how do you get out and meet people when it's the middle of a pandemic yeah you know, so, you know, if you move as a couple, then at least you have each other. But if you're a single veteran or a widowed right. veteran or a widowed spouse like I was, how do you, how do you make those connections with people? Yeah. And, you know, again, that's another layer that complicates the grieving process and makes that transition even more difficult. Yeah. So I am going to swing us back around, though, to a little bit of mentoring. You have a new title that was recently bestowed upon you. So tell our listeners a little bit about that. So it's funny because when I moved home to Nova Scotia, I had my first meeting with my lawyer and he asked me what I was going to do with my life. And I said, well, I'm not going to have more children and I'm never going to wear a uniform. And now I chuckle because I've recently been appointed as the honorary lieutenant colonel of the 42nd Field Regiment, Lanark and Renfrew Scottish RCA and Pembroke. Not a role I ever thought I would be fulfilling in my life. I'm incredibly honored to do it. A little bit daunted about wearing the uniform. Yeah. Uh, it, it, for anybody who's seen my picture, I have like this massive 
head of curly hair and I haven't quite figured out how I'm going to put a beret on my head yet. Cause of course the pandemic, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, the rest of my uniform pieces came in right as we went into lockdown. So I haven't even like actually, besides when I first went to the tailor, I haven't actually worn my uniform and my son kind of chuckles and he's like, it's okay, mom, I will make sure that you don't go out looking like a big hammer. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I'm really excited about it. Well, congratulations, first of Thanks. all. But tell us, you know, you know, why did you accept the position? What were you thinking you could be able to do there? So when the colonel called me, commanding officer is Jen Causey, yeah. who happened to be Dan's 2IC when he was died. And she did an amazing job in the, in the mm-hmm. aftermath of that during like the most incredibly difficult circumstances. And she called me. Uh, one day out of the blue, and she said, she, well, she, she messaged me. She's like, can I call you? And I'm like, this is weird. Okay. <laughs> and she's like, well, I have this idea. And and it's funny because I'm listening to her talk, and, uh, you know, it's like I'm having this interior, it's speaking of tug of wars with myself, right? Right. I'm like, no, I can't do that. Yes, I have to do it. No, I can't do that. I can't wear a uniform. And that was really what, that was the one thing I was like, ah. I, you know, like, I don't know if I can put a uniform on. I think I would feel like an imposter and, Mm -hmm. and I can't do this. But at the same time, as I'm saying, I knew I was going to say yes, because to me, it's just, it's another way for me to give back to my community. It's another way for me to serve Mm -hmm. the people of not just the military community in Pembroke and Petawala, but even the civilian community. They've been so supportive after Dan died. And, you know, to me, that area... Um, even though I come from the Maritimes, it's it's almost like home too. There's similarities, right? And, right? Yeah, yeah, and it feels like home when I go there because we've been posted there three times, and and our older two kids were born there. So, and it's an extension of okay. Since Dan died, I've very much been about how can I help others who are going through something like I went through, or some other difficult circumstance or a transition, and this is just another way for me to do that. And I think Dan was in the reserves when we joined. So I kind of get it from that sense of being the partner, you know, a girlfriend of somebody who joined. And, and of course I'm, I'm a mom of a soldier. So, you know, I know what he's been through the last few years. So it's just, can I use this to make a difference to help the soldiers of the unit and their family? And, you know, to me, that's what it, that's always my motivation. How can I, give back? How can I help somebody? And I always say, you know, and I said this, the very first speaking event I did, it wasn't even quite two years after Dan died. And I said, you know what, if me coming here today, speaking helps just one soldier and their family, then it means I've brought something good from a traumatic loss. And it means that I found the meaning, some meaning in it. And it's also a way for me to carry on Dan's legacy. Yeah. The soldiers were his second family, right? Like yeah. he he loved his soldiers. And I always say that, like, uh, you know, tragically he died, but thank God nobody else did. Because, right. you know, I know that his main priority would have been their safety. Yeah. And I think that now, like, okay, how can something really terrible happen to us? But now I have an opportunity to help all these other soldiers and their families. So for me, that was the big motivator was okay you know this is another opportunity for me to help somebody else 
there's our tie back to RMC because uh, I know Jen from, uh, we played some soccer together in oh, a few, there you go. More, more in ex-cadet matches because we're, I think we graduated about five years apart, but uh, okay. I, I went to school with her brother. <laughs> okay. And you know, to me, it's just like when I, the first night I walked into the unit, the RSM, Pete Tebow was uh, in Dan's battery when they went to Afghanistan. So wow. it's like going home. Right. right. Like, and, you know, it's it's such, you know, it's a very small unit, but there's such an amazing group of people. We have a lieutenant who transferred in from Newfoundland and he's a retired school teacher and him and I hit it off like, <laughs> you know, right away. And a lot of the members are spouses of Reg Force members. There's some oh, wow. young kids that are, you know, kids that are younger than my kids. And and, you know, and it's just they're all so proud of the unit and so eager and it's just you know I've only gotten to go once but it was just it was like this is why I'm here like I just yeah. when I walked into the into the armories I was just like I felt like I was home you know such an a small but mighty I like to say yeah I'll ask you one last question before we wrap up today so this is when I ask all of our guests but is there any advice that you'd like to give to any of the, I'll, I'll say majority women who are listening. <laughs> I think we have a few men who listen, but uh, majority women. Um, and whether it's on um, transitions or career or anything like that, anything you'd like to say? You know what? I this is the one of the big things that I've been been saying is um, make the most of where you're at now, even if it's not perfect. And I mean, it's COVID, so nothing's perfect right now. <laughs> but don't wait to live your best life. I did that. I was one of those people who I had this great life and great husband, a beautiful new house, three kids. I had my own little business. Things were great, but I wasn't the happiest with myself. I wasn't physically or mentally as healthy as I could be. And I was one of those people that, oh, well, you know, I'll be happy when we go to the next posting or, you know, I'll be happier when, right? right. But it took me a long time to realize that that I wasn't going to be happy until I made the decision to make the best of the life that I had. Right. And, and I think that I think all too often, you know, after Dan died and, and I was in this really dark place and I had to pick myself up and put my life back together. And, and now I'm, I'm mentally uh, and physically healthier than I ever was when he was alive. And, you know, and I think, it's such a shame because Dan didn't get to see this version of me. I know. Right? Because yeah. this version of me came after him and because he died. Yeah. Um, and so I say to people, don't make that mistake. Don't do the yeah. same thing I did. Don't wait to to live your best life or to be happy until retirement or or until the next posting or or whatever. It's you know, you have to you have to find find the good in every day that you have now and to, to, to live it now, because, you know, you, we we all go through life on this kind of, I think we get so caught up in, in making a living, we forget to live. Yeah. And, and we take for granted all this time, right? Like I, you know, I certainly think that I didn't stop to appreciate how lucky I was enough. And I think sometimes you don't realize what you, you know, the, the old cliche, you don't know what you had until it's gone. And, and I can't go back. And, and redo those years with Dan, but I can live the best life I can now and make, and make the most of the time I'm given now. And so that's, don't wait. Yeah. 
I think that is excellent, excellent advice for us to end on. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll say Honorary Lieutenant Colonel Monica Bobbitt. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Okay. Thank you for joining us on the WMN Canada podcast. Special thanks to this week's sponsor, CP Business Solutions. If you're interested in being a guest for season two of the podcast, please reach out on email wmncanada at gmail.com or on Instagram at WMN Canada. Thanks to our podcast editor, Ethan Koenka.